Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author of that book. This week's guest is biochemist Chris Cooper, head of research in sports and exercise science at the University of Essex. We are discussing his book, Run, Swim, Throw, Cheat, The Science Behind Drugs in Sport, published by Oxford University Press in 2012. Just this past August, the long and convoluted story of doping allegations against Lance Armstrong came to its presumed end. Armstrong gave up the fight against charges that he had engaged in doping while winning seven straight Tour de France titles. While Armstrong continues to maintain his innocence, and many people still believe him, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency has stripped the cyclist of his titles and banned him from competitions. But whether or not Armstrong did in fact dope, the evidence and accusations surrounding his story confirms that cycling of the late 90s and early 2000s, like women's track and field of the 1980s or baseball of the 1990s, was inextricably tangled with performance-enhancing drugs. Of course, in these cases, the question is often asked, how do we view the athletes and accomplishments from these tainted periods of sports history? Do we strip the titles and erase the records? or let them stand under the assumption that, since nearly everybody was doing it, those athletes who won were simply the best of a dirty lot. Chris Cooper insists that before we make judgments about doping in sports, we need to understand how doping works in the blood and muscles of athletes. Are performance-enhancing drugs truly unsafe to the health of athletes? And do they give a measurable advantage, an unfair advantage, to competitors who are doping? Chris addresses these questions in his book and in our interview. If you're like me, you've surely read plenty of sports writers' accounts of doping scandals. But after reading Chris's book and chatting with him about it, I now have a clear understanding of the issues surrounding performance-enhancing drugs. Here is our interview. Our guest this week on New Books and Sports is Chris Cooper. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So by way of an introduction, I'll tell listeners that Chris is a biochemist who is a professor and head of research at the Center for Sports and Exercise Science at the University of Essex. And uh, I'll ask you to start, uh, Chris, by telling, telling us what led you to bring these two interests together, biochemistry and sport. Well, as I say, I've always been interested in sport, and I am a, I'm a biochemist. And actually, some of my research is now in the area of, 
of sport, not particularly about drugs. But I, I do work on an area where I try and create artificial blood um, for clinical reasons to replace blood transfusions. And that's one area of a sort of molecule that's banned in sports. So I got a research interest indirectly in in sports uh, and, and in doping. But I also have a general interest. I mean, I teach a module, of course, to our undergraduate students at the university on drugs in sport. And some people say, well, why not just, just write a book and, and, and explore it properly as a sort of slightly naive biochemist going into the whole area of drugs in sport and saying, what's the research say? Where are things now? Where are they going to go in the future? One thing I enjoyed about the book is that you're, you're clearly enthusiastic about new discoveries in the field in sports science. So can you give us a, a sketch of how, how you've seen the field develop over the last, uh, last decade or two decades or so? I think it's starting to take on a much more modern way of looking at things. It's quite interesting. Sports science has traditionally been very sort of physiology and psychology based, I guess, in the, in the U.S. and Canada is sort of called kinesiology, but those sort of areas. And what's happening is a much more modern molecular techniques are coming into the sports science field, and that's really interesting. So I think rather bizarrely, the biochemists were not doing looking at the whole body very often. They, they sort of forgot about the whole body. And the sports scientists sort of forgot about or didn't look at the individual molecules. And now those two expertises are coming together. And it's quite, quite an exciting time, really, in, in, that, in that biochemists now are much more interested in the whole body and sports scientists are much more interested in the individual molecules. So it's, it's a much more synthetic. I mean, I think the concept is what's called generally called systems biology, systems physiology that sort of come together at the moment. And it's quite an exciting time because of that. And is this being driven by, by athletes and trainers then? Um, I think not particularly. I mean, driven by the scientists wanting to understand the basic science of what happens, and that requires using the most modern techniques. Mm -hmm. I think the trainers are more, much more focused on the immediate effects. So I think, I think as a sports scientist, I usually have a, sometimes have a different time scale of thought to when I speak to athletes and coaches. I mean, I don't, I don't do too much co work with coaches, but when I do, they want to know immediately what works now, how it helped me get the next, get to the next level. And as a scientist, I tend to be looking at a much more longer frame. So I have to have two mindsets, really. So let's turn to the book. And, uh, and you begin the book with an, with an episode that happened in 1988, and that was the, uh, the infamous final of the men's 100-meter yeah. sprint at the Seoul Olympics. So could you talk about that race and how, how it was perhaps uh, representative of athletics at the time? Yeah, well, I think not just at that time. I mean, but um, yeah, in that in that particular race, I guess the the sort of um, view is that um, Ben Johnson won in this super fast time. For those of you who don't remember, nine point seven three, um, the fastest time by a long way ever, um, and he was celebrating before he crossed the line, and that was an amazing event, and certainly an amazing event for Canada because he, he was a Canadian. But I guess the next morning, the world woke up to know the name Ben Johnson. And because a hundred meter sprint is like the blue ribbon event of the games, and then three days later they woke up to know about the anabolic steroids because he was tested positive for anabolic steroids and therefore was had his gold medal taken away. Then there was a big inquiry in Canada into that, and subsequently, when you look at the athletes who competed in that event, very many of them um, were tainted um, by accusations or, in some cases, shown to have been taking performance-enhancing drugs, in particular anabolic steroids, to increase their power of sprinting. So it was sort of a seminal event in drugs in sport because it was the men's 100 metres in the Olympic final, and it was won so fast. 
And although steroids have been around for a long time and probably performance-enhancing drugs were fairly common from the late 70s onwards, certainly in the 80s, that was the moment when the world grew up to know it. So I'll follow up on that, on that and ask about uh, the history of drugs and sports and, and what led us to that race in 1988. When, it, when and where did doping begin and why did it become so widespread? Well, it really depends what you mean by drugs and doping. Because arguably you'd go back in terms, in terms of the gladiators. Mm-hmm. They, they were taking you know, certain herbs or things they thought helped them improve their performance. So if you can go back to Pliny talking about various compounds and herb extracts. So the idea of using special chemicals to enhance performance is, is certainly not new. Um, in terms of trying to get drugs to improve performance, even in the early 20th century, people were using compounds. So there's the famous, um, uh, I think it's the Olympics, 1912, when the marathon, uh, well, the first person to pass the line in the marathon um, actually cheated because he drove a car halfway around, or was driven in a car, but the one who actually won um, had taken strychnine and alcohol, so these sort of stimulants. Uh, and, but that was perfectly legal, but that, even at that point, people were taking compounds to enhance performance, and it sort of rumbled on. I mean, in the, in the 1930s, amphetamine started to get used, and certainly in football matches in, in Britain, they were they were being used in some World Cup final um, and some football association cup finals, and then also um, compounds like well, really testosterone, the, the precursors of anabolic steroids. People were taking um, what they called monkey glands or monkey juice, which really was sort of extracts of monkey scrotum, I suppose, um, to get the testosterone, which is the male sex hormone, which you get from, from, from those glands. And I think even the Marx Brothers sang about monkey, monkey glands. So it was, it was around in the 30s. Freud, Sigmund Freud was the first one to use cocaine to try and improve performance. So he was uh, actually one of the first sports scientists, Sigmund Freud, did really nice interesting studies on the effect of cocaine on hand grip strength. But like the normal, sort of normal in the verticoms, recreational drugs, um, it sort of rumbled along in the 20th century with mild disapproval, concern, is it okay or not? The Second World War saw everyone using amphetamines, and it was defined to keep awake during the battles, etc. Um, and it really was in the 60s that they began to be seen, I think, as being an, an outright evil. And whether that's a parallel with what was happening with recreational drugs and sports drugs, I don't know. But that's about when steroids came out and being thought of as being, as being problematic the 60s and, and 70s. So then it became a big issue. It's arguable who started using steroids, which are the anabolic steroids that increase your power, the compounds that we're talking about, Ben Johnson. But probably it was some Eastern European or Russian weightlifters and or um, U.S. bodybuilders. But along the, along those lines, that it became more common and widespread. So, looking then at the post-war period, when when anabolic steroids come to be used by bodybuilders, by by athletes in the Soviet bloc, um, who who was developing these performance-enhancing drugs? Was this something that that pharmaceutical chemists were setting out to do to create drugs that would make people stronger and faster? Well, steroids um, really evolved. When well, they evolved, they were discovered, if you like, though they are natural molecules, you discover them rather than create them. In the 1930s, there was a big interest by pharmaceutical companies um, and by uh, researchers in the US and in uh, Switzerland and, and Germany to uh, Belgium as well, to get, to get these molecules. Um, I mean, the, the first testosterone to try to get the, the, the testosterone, there was one um, 
U.S. scientists who were just using the, the just cadavers from the Chicago um, stockyard, a big source of animals, and still is, I think. That, but certainly in that time, that was the big place where all the animals were killed with agriculture in the U.S. And somebody in Switzerland was just taking, you know, hundreds of litres of urine from Swiss policemen to purify the, the molecules. So they were doing this mass industrial scale purification to see what this special molecule was that was, in, was the, the, you know, the male sex hormone. Once they discovered it, there was a big interest by pharmaceutical companies because they thought this would be wonderful molecules. They would give you long life and strength and vitality. So there was a huge interest in it for life-enhancing properties. And it's, it's sort of unfortunate that it hasn't really lived up to that hype. Uh, I mean, it's sort of similar hype about human growth hormone at the moment, which, again, hasn't really lived up to it. So it was discovered and developed because they thought it would be good for human health and medicine, not for sport. It turns out it's probably, um, apart from a few clinical cases, it's most effective in, in that area, in, in, the, in the sports, in the increasing power. So let's turn to the science behind behind these drugs, behind steroids and other other performance enhancing drugs. And uh, you start the book by laying out the the chemical processes that occur when the body exercises. And uh, I don't I, we don't have the opportunity to go through all that in in the interview. But instead, I'll ask you something that's a more pointed and selfish question related to that. What would be your suggestion as a biochemist? for the optimal exercise program for, say, a male academic in his mid-40s? What is, what is going to be the best activity in terms of working his internal chemistry? In terms of health or in terms of uh, in general, general good? Yeah, general health. So, so general health, I mean, it gets quite boring in a sense. General health, <laughs> I wouldn't almost exercise. Any physical activity is good. And when you look at the graphs of, you know, cardiovascular risk, which is mostly the benefit of exercises in cardiovascular health, you know, reducing heart attacks. Um, any exercise you do, the more you do, is better. So if you look at it, so um, and almost not exercise, so any activity. And, and the graph gets steepest at the beginning. So if you do no exercise and you're a 40-year-old academic, do some. If that just means walking from the car to the, you know, a bit further or walking up the stairs, do it. You'll see a benefit. Uh, you don't need to do, if you're just the general health benefit, you don't need to do much. You need to do anything. But if you do more, it'll be better. The big debate at the moment in, in the sports science field is about um, can you get away with doing very little exercise but very high intensity? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really been the argument in the last 10 years. So there's a, a group, and, it, and it's, it's a number of people that have shown that you can get good fitness by doing essentially three minutes um, exercise a week. The problem is the three minutes of exercise is absolutely horrible to do. So you do maximum intensity exercise for you know, a minute, and then you do that. It's basically three 20-second exercises. And when, when we do that exercise in the lab, sometimes the students throw up. So, I mean, it's, it's a level of high intensity. But that's the debate at the moment is can you get away with very high intensity for short periods of time, or do you need to do this a very long period of time? Um, you know, sort of behind the three to 30 minutes, three times a week, which is sort of what they've been recommending. But what I should say, and I really want to say this quite clearly, is that if you just want to get, reduce your risk of heart attacks and, 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 and stroke, you just need to do more exercise than you're currently doing, almost certainly. 
and you don't need to, you know, be obsessive about it. Just do more. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of crude health message. If you've got a specific event to do that you want to, you want to train for, then, of course, it's a rather more specific exercise program you would need to undertake. Well, let's turn to uh, illegal and unsafe uh, uh, performance boosters. And uh, I want to start first by asking about EPO and, and blood doping. And uh, in, my, in my reading about this in the past, about blood doping, I had been under the impression that, that the purpose of blood doping, so for instance with, with long-distance cyclists, was for them to get more oxygen in their blood. But, but I gather that's not entirely correct, is it? No, it's pretty much correct. I think okay. that reading is, is correct. Um, it turns out that uh, how fast you can perform in an aerobic sport like long-distance cycling, like long-distance running, is very controlled by the physical amount of oxygen you can dissolve in your blood. And that's controlled by and large by how much of the hemoglobin, the red protein, that carries the oxygen around the blood you can have. So anything that increases that would increase the oxygen content in your blood and therefore should improve performance. So no, I think that I think that's pretty right, pretty correct. Um, that's why athletes do altitude training or they train in these low oxygen tents to try and increase the number of red blood cells, the number of hemoglo- amount of hemoglobin molecules, the amount of oxygen they can carry. Okay. So then my confusion as a as a historian with a less than layman's understanding of chemistry was uh uh, that altitude training and connected with that blood doping was aimed perhaps at not at putting more oxygen into the blood, but getting the blood uh, or getting the athlete to perform on less oxygen in the blood. No, because in fact, they, they, um, they one of the problems with altitude training has historically been that you can't train as hard at altitude. Mm-hmm. So it's not, and, and therefore, it's not that you get used to training at, uh, uh, with low amount of oxygen, therefore you're better when you sprint. No, it's, it's a genuine, the body's response to low oxygen is to increase the number of red blood cells. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to a lower level, um, you've got more red blood cells so you can perform better. So it's not that you stress the body and do the exercise at altitude. In fact, what athletes do now is they go to altitude to sleep there and live there and come down to ground level to do their training. It's called live high, train low. So they deliberately avoid what you're saying. They don't want to do the training altitude because they can't train at the right intensity and they, they detrain themselves. So, so they, they train on the ground, sea, sea level and go up to altitude to live. And so then does doping mimic that? So doping does mimic that in, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell. So um, the body's response to altitude or to a situation where it has low oxygen, it, a number of things get triggered, but in the long term, the trigger is make more red blood cells. And the molecule that does that, there's a number of them, but on that pathway is a molecule called EPO or erythropoietin. So the body, in response to um, low, low oxygen, which you get at high altitude, is the kidney releases the hormone EPO. And EPO then triggers an increase in red blood cells. You can get around that, therefore, not bother with the altitude, by just injecting EPO. So EPO is a shortcut to do that. And because it's a shortcut, um, it actually turns out you could probably get to a higher number of red blood cells because you can get more EPO by injecting it than you can by going to altitude. So it's not a shortcut um, 
but it's actually probably gets you gets you to a higher level. And the other thing you can do is just do a straight blood transfusion, which immediately gets you more red blood cells, and that's the quickest way to to be able to run faster. And does this work then? Yes, I mean the surprising thing is that in in sports doping, um, it's all basically parasitizes around medicine. So even the steroids we talked about were originally supposed to be medical drugs, got taken up by sports doping. And there's a sort of a, might be surprising why anything works, because medicine usually takes things that don't work and tries to make them normal. And what sports people want to do is take normal and make them super normal. There's no guarantee that something that takes somebody who's deficient to a normal level will also get them to a super normal level. But it turns out that seems to be the case with red blood cells. So if you have somebody, obviously, in an accident loses blood, you give them blood transfusion to bring them back to the normal level. If you take a normal person and you give them more blood, that appears to give you even more oxygen and you perform even better. And what people thought was the case was maybe the blood would get too thick and therefore it wouldn't flow as well because of too, much, too many red blood cells. And that would counteract that effect. Actually, that doesn't seem to be the case. Pretty much you can go... Um, you can increase the red blood cells to, to levels above what you can get naturally, and you increase performance. So that's been a big issue and a big problem in the sport in the sports doping industry. But, but you know, it, it, it pretty much does work. I mean, I, if I had to be hand on heart to say, what were the two of all the many things that athletes use to improve performance, band or, or non-band? The two things that really work would be um, anabolic steroids for female athletes, mm-hmm. giving them male sex hormones, getting the muscular works and blood doping with any endurance athletes. They're the things that I would say the best scientific evidence that they work. Everything else is is a little bit anecdotal and, and circumstantial. So as you said, blood doping is, is effective for endurance athletes, and uh, you've already mentioned anabolic steroids. So uh, I want to turn to that. And be, before we do talk about steroids, something interesting I found in the book is that uh, – uh, you, you write that while sports scientists know a lot about blood and oxygen and how they work in, in athletics, they don't know as much about the internal chemistry of muscles during exercise. Can, why, why is that the case? It's <laughs> a good question. Because uh, I was really surprised because sometimes you leave fields of science that you don't know about and you come back to them and think, why haven't they solved that problem? I assumed that it would be really well known exactly how testosterone worked to increase muscle mass. Um, I'm, I, I think when I was an undergraduate student, I'd learned about how sex hormones work. So you know the basic thing about how steroid hormones or sex hormones work, and they bind to a receptor that go inside the cell. But actually, the individual parts of DNA, which is where ultimately where these molecules interact with, which cause you to trigger the, the pathways to increase muscle protein synthesis and therefore to increase muscle mass, that pathway is not well characterized um, in the muscle. So we know quite a bit about how testosterone causes secondary sexual effects that we have. Um, We know quite a lot about it in prostate cancer because enhanced um, testosterone levels causes problems in prostate cancer. Um, But in the muscle, I would say we don't know the fine molecular details of how testosterone works. Now, there's not an awful lot of research going on in that area because the research is usually driven by medical need. And it's unfortunate that steroids have not proved to be this wonderful medical panacea that was hoped in the 1930s and 1940s. So there's not a huge amount of research because 
it looks like the area is not, not going to be productive for new molecules, but also the number of diseases that cause problems with muscle mass is, also, is few. I mean, we're, they're not minor. I mean, things like muscular dystrophy, but it's not like cancer. It's not like heart disease. It's not like Alzheimer's. It's smaller, and therefore there's less research money goes in. So less research money means less discoveries. So I think that would be my view. I mean, there's not a lot of money in sport. You might think there is, but actually in thought, in terms of the science bit, there's not a lot of money. And compared to medicine, even sport compared to medicine is a small, is a small industry. So that's probably why the development has not been as rapid as we might have thought. Um, or it's just complicated and, it's just, and we're not clever enough to find it out. I mean, it, you know, it might just be we haven't done the right experiments yet. But I think that's, that's potentially what's happening, which means there are unexplored fields for dopers to, to sort of tag onto. But I think what I've said perhaps before is that they tend not to do that because that's expensive and difficult. They tend to parasitize on drugs that scientists have found for something else. So although in the book I talk about certain pathways that you might want to think about doing if you wanted to improve performance, I don't think there's any chance that you know, dopers would, would do that. They'll just wait for medicine to do something similar and then copy it. You know, so that would be the concern. Well, following up on that, so you mentioned the, the dopers who are, are developing these, these drugs. Who, who are these people? Who is, who's making EPO and, and anabolic steroids? Are, are they, and are these chemicals easy to make? Are they difficult to make? relatively easy to make. I mean, um, it depends what level we're talking about. So um, EPO is just made, I mean, it's a, it's a normal compound, and it has a very strong, important clinical use in treating um, lack of red blood cells in, the, in kidney disease. Um, so if you have a, a kidney problem, you have less red blood cells because you're not making EPO. They're treated with EPO. So there's a big black market in EPO. Um, and it's relatively easy to make it now by modern techniques. It used to be that these drugs were hard to make because you need to purify them from dead bodies. Um, but EPO you make in, in by genetic techniques now in bacteria um, or in, in, in cultured cells. And that's fairly easy. And it's off patent, so there's generic companies making it. So EPO is, um, has a potential you know, on the black market. You can get it. Same with human growth hormone, another another hormone like that that you can access. Um, anabolic steroids, I'm not an expert, I'm, not, I'm a biochemist, not a journalist, I don't know where all the roots for black market drugs are. Anabolic steroids can be made relatively simply in laboratories, so it's probably with steroids a mixture of the black market because they do have some clinical use, and home labs, I think places in the US and Mexico, probably other places in the world. Some countries you can buy steroids over the counter because um, you can buy medicines over the counter, so they can sh- you know, ship that way. So I think it's it's a it's a combination of things. I say I'm not an expert because I um, uh, you know I know I'm not into the drug trade, but it's it's not that difficult. What's more difficult is to make a new compound. So um, in order to access a compound that's in clinical trials, that's not in the market. So there's quite often new varieties of EPO that are being made because e- EPO you want to modify the drug to make it better, last longer, or be, have less side effects. And when those are in clinical trials, they might be harder to get hold of before they get into the, into the commercial market. So, but a lot of the interest is not in, not in just getting the molecules, but to get ones that can't be tested for. And the, the classic example of that was um, the Balco Laboratories and, and, the, and the U.S. chemist um, who, there, who developed a molecule called the CLEAR, which is what uh, Marion Jones took and Tim Montgomery and in the UK, Dwayne Chambers, which was 
specifically designed such that and engineered in the lab such that it couldn't be detected um, by anti-doping agencies. And that, I think, I could see that carrying on being happen- happening because that's an idea that it's not too difficult to think of how you might do that. Um, you're not trying to think of a whole new field of research. You're saying, how can I make this molecule less easy to detect? And, and that, that is a possibility. But to do that, the dopers would need a good amount of resources to do that kind of that kind of development. And as, as you were just saying, there isn't there isn't that much money. In... Well, Patrick Johnson who developed that, that was not. It was pretty much in a, you know in the same sort of labs that make recreational drugs in the U.S. Not okay. that difficult. Okay. So, uh, but of course, he'd not have any expensive pharmaceutical companies in doing clinical trials. So, if you develop a new drug. For a medicine, you have to spend you know tens of millions of pounds going through regulation, and they just put it straight into people, which I think is is actually pretty scandalous, really. Um, so it's possible their modifications could have been really bad, but they just did them anyway. So in that sense, it's cheaper because you're not doing any of the regulation and any of the safety tests in animals. You're just putting it straight to people. So it's a little bit cheaper. The chemistry is not that difficult. I think for versions of EPO it might be a bit more complicated. But I think much more likely is to find molecules that drug companies use and then copy them. And I think that that is still possible. There are compounds on the EPO pathway, but not EPO, that I think might be of interest to to dopers. And um, so there's a great interest in the anti-doping agencies talking to the pharmaceutical companies and say, okay, you've got a new molecule. It's going to get out to the dopers. They'll either make it themselves or they'll nick it, steal it, give it to us, and we want to test for it. And they develop the test during the preclinical testing, during the animal testing, to make sure that when it gets into the athletes, they've got a test ready for it. And that's, I think, a much more, if you like, aggressive anti-doping um, activity to really make sure they know what's available and they can test for it. I want to go back to uh, anabolic steroids and, and back to the, the story that starts your book. Uh, you had mentioned that anabolic steroids with women provide a clear jump in performance but but thinking of Ben Johnson and his his world record was that was that the result of, of steroids would you say um, I think it's difficult to judge on on individuals um, I think Johnson probably ran faster because he was on steroids yes I mean I, I think he'd be very careful because I what I refuse to go down the line of saying is when you see a fast time mm-hmm. that person must have been on steroids I mean, my biggest time at the Olympics that I was on, go on radio and TV was when a Chinese swimmer did a very fast time, and a U.S. coach said, that must be doping. And I, you know, me and most of the athletes were saying, you can't do that, otherwise everyone gets accused of doping. So I'm very careful of not, of not saying a fast time means you must be doping. Clearly, Ben Johnson thought it was improving his speed and, you know, and power, and there's reasonable you know, good evidence that steroids can have that effect. So it wouldn't surprise me if Ben Johnson... For him, the steroids made him go faster, yes. So in that sense, I think it's, it's, it's certainly a, a possibility. There's also a big placebo effect. If you're on steroids, you know you're on steroids, you go a lot faster. I mean, it's not clear that um, Tim Montgomery or Dwayne Chambers were faster because they were on steroids. I mean, Dwayne Chambers is the UK athlete. wasn't a huge lot faster when he was on steroids, and that was only for a couple of, a couple of years compared to what he wasn't on them. Um, he's less clear about Marion Jones because exactly when she was on the steroids, I'm, I'm not clear about. So I think you have to be careful to be precise and certainly to, to accuse people who've got fast times because they're on steroids. But I think with Ben Johnson, it, it's likely that he got faster because of the power. Um, that was the kind of athlete he was, you know. 
I think that was almost certainly the case. So, Chris, you also have a chapter on on gene doping. And uh, an interesting statement you make in the book, uh, at the start of the book, is that really all high-performance athletes are genetic anomalies, and uh, which, which makes reading it made perfect sense. That I, I could run 100-meter sprints all day for a year, and I'm never going to run under 10 mm-hmm. seconds. So, uh, but is it, is it possible in some way to, to create those genetic anomalies? I think I would have said to create it, no, initially, um, when I first started the book. There are a few examples of, of, of creations in, in some situations where, where it might be possible. So I think with someone like you saying bold, it's all, some horrible combination of things, and we just don't know enough about it to even think how you would create it. Mm-hmm. We don't know enough. Um, we, look at, we can look at the biomechanics of Bolt and say he takes fewer paces to get where he's going. He's, he's very unusual because he's tall, got power, and could coordinate. And it's very difficult to find anyone who looks like Usain Bolt. So I was looking at the book thinking, well, what other sport would there be somebody who was that tall, you know, six five, six six, that powerful? And, and, you know, and I thought there must be, the, you know, an American footballer who was like that. Um, because if you're a, you know, a wide receiver, you've got to be strong and powerful, particularly fast. Um, and it's not true. There are very few American footballers who, who are anywhere near as tall as Bolt. And they're certainly not as not as fast. So he's a bit of an anomaly, but it's probably a combination of things we don't we don't know about. So in that sense, we don't know about the genetic boldness of Bolt, but almost certainly it's 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 in his genes as well as his all his training. But when it comes to certain effects, we do know more, and we probably can potentially alter it genetically. And the example I would give that's most famous relates to this blood doping we talked about. The idea about having more oxygen in your blood. Uh, and particularly this molecule EPO, there was a, a Finnish cross-country skier called Iro Mantiranta who won many gold medals, one of the most famous in, in the Winter, Olymp- Winter Olympians there, there was in Finland. And he had a high red blood cell count. So you might think he was with lots of red blood cells. He'd been doping. It turned out he had a modified, what's called a receptor for EPO. So even though he had the same amount of EPO in his body naturally as everyone else, he was completely overactive in his body's response to that EPO. So he made more red blood cells. And he had that for his whole life. And he lived with it, appeared to be okay. So he was a single gene modification that made him better at sport. So that's, if you like, the idea that the gene dopers, people who you know, cling on to, that maybe there's a magic single gene. Because you can't possibly change 20 or 30 genes in somebody if you want to create something. So what the gene dopers want to do is find a single one that makes a difference. And I think with endurance sport, it's possible. I mean, with power sports, there is one gene that is of interest, and that's the myostatin gene, which if you look at, I mean, the best example is, have you ever seen these, they're called Belgian double-muscled cows. You look at a a bull from that breed, and they're just huge. They're double-muscled, they look massively strong and muscle, that's a single defect that removes a gene called myostatin. And myostatin, that's the myo's muscle, Greek statin, means stop. It stops muscle growth. You remove that gene, and you get this very enhanced muscle growth. So again, the idea is maybe you could design somebody without that. Now, we do know there are people walking around who don't have that gene. And we don't know is how many of them are um, powerful athletes and weightlifters, So because we don't gene test people. At the end of the book, you, you turn to questions of why doping is illegal, and you ask whether it should be illegal. 
And uh, in that chapter, you take on two of the main arguments for banning doping. One, that, that doping is unsafe for the health of athletes. And, and two, that doping provides an unfair advantage. So can you talk about the conclusions you made in that chapter to those two questions? Yeah, I mean, I, I always try and present the questions and say, look, let's look at the science, make our discussion on the basis of understanding science. I mean, understand, has this molecule got a risk? Um, understand, does it improve performance? Base it on the science and be sensible. So, and then it's just everybody in the street can make that decision. So, so one of the, actually, one of the reasons to write the book was to say, okay, we're going to be talking about drugs in sport, let's understand the science. So, I have my own personal views, which I will give you because I'm sure you're interested, but read the book and come to your own views. That's, that's really what I'm saying. What my own personal views are, um, you're asking in terms of safety and in terms of um, performance enhancing. I mean, I think I do have concerns about the safety, and it's largely because of the same thing any parent would have about once these things become acceptable, they'll get used by kids and then there'll be pressure put on kids to use them. And I think that's you know, similar to what happened in East Germany, where there was pressure put on kids and adults to take drugs. You, I, I think it's, it's and, and, and they're potentially unsafe. And I think that's problematic, and I'd rather there was at least a pretense that we're trying to stop it. So I think I would, my personal view would be that if you think it's, people who want to legalize drugs, make them unban, are not really aware of what Pandora's box they're opening. And I, because, you know, biochemists can think of lots of weird things and, I, and I, we've talked about some of them. And I, and I think just saying, let's have a level playing field, I think there are serious things that would be problematic. I think anabolic steroids in females, it's very difficult to see how you would think that, you know, right, it's unnatural, but people, you know, but, 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 but that's a sort of sensible route to go down. I mean, I was just interviewed this afternoon by a female bodybuilder who doesn't go in the top competitions because there's no way she can compete in those, competes naturally on the basis that, you know, she doesn't want to have the, the side effects from there. And I think that seems to me sensible, and I don't think you'd want to have those sorts of competitions. So my personal view is that there are some areas where the health problems are so obvious that, that really we should, we should hold the line there. I'm much less concerned about some areas where the health risks are very minor and the performance benefits are, are, are less strong. Things like the sort of cough mixtures and cold remedies that are that are, have stimulants in them and, and people sometimes test positive for they're called things like pseudoephedrine phenyl, um, which, is, which is banned for and really not that bad for you and probably not that performance enhancing but actually I think the, um, the sporting bodies are, and the antidoping are sort of coming on board with that now along with recreational drugs which are banned in sport because they're bad for the image of sport rather than their performance enhancing and they They've now, those bands are now quite, quite short, and, and they've um, coming along with those lines. So I think it's sort of about right, is my view, where we stand. But, you know, it's not, in some ways, not a dissimilar debate to drugs in society. You know, you can imagine in a different place, and that's perfectly feasible if society wants that. So what I always want to say is that, okay, if you get to that place, you know, think about it carefully, because you may not really want to be there. So don't think it's, and some, sometimes people who, who think that haven't thought it through, haven't thought about the science through and, and the implications. And I think that's, that's all I'm, the book is about, really, trying to enable people to make informed decisions about, about, about drugs in sport. Well, we're almost out of time, Chris, and uh, we do need to talk about Lance Armstrong. <laughs> we can 
talk about him now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, couldn't so it, couldn't do that before. It's not even hardly in the book. He is. He's in the book twice, and he's you. You mention him only in passing. And I, I like the line that you had on your blog though after the news broke of of Lance Armstrong uh, uh, back in August, where you wrote, "Now I'm finally free to write about Lance Armstrong." with little chance of initiating a lawsuit. So I'll ask you, uh, I'll phrase it this way. Um, when, when the second edition of your book comes out, how will you put, or, or is it necessary to put Lance Armstrong into the book? How clearly he'll be in the book, because in terms of the, um, the whole Tour de France issue is, is uh, you know, one of the paradigm issues of, of doping in sport, as has been um, you know, the East Germans. So if you want to look at the situations where doping is systematic and therefore I can, you know, really problematic because, you know, then there's real unfairness rather than the odd person you, you want to catch. Um, it's like organized doping and organized crime versus the odd criminal. Then, you know, the East German system clearly was one. Um, I think arguably the con- concern with Balco and what they were trying to do was, although not quite the same scale, was a concern in, in the U.S. and then the Tour de France where it was clear that a number of teams, if not the majority, were systematically doping. Now, that's okay if that's all above board, and you say, that's all right, let's do it, let's control it. I have no problem with that if that's what the rules are. But the rules are that way, and, and you then end up being kicking people off your team, which was what was happening, because they were not doping um, or talking about it. Then I think that's problematic. So I, I think it makes it easier to talk about that, when you can talk about the person who won seven Tour de France in a row and has been implicated in it. So in that sense, yes, he'd be in the story. I mean, what's intriguing to me, which I do mention in my blog, is that, is that you know, it's clear that if Lance Armstrong was not doping, as he, I should say, he still says he was not doping, if Lance Armstrong was not doping, then you look at all the people he beat were, you know, accused of doping and some of them found guilty of doping. So he was the only one, you know, not doing it at the time, if, you, if, you, if, if that story is true. Um, if we believe him. So, you know, either he was just superhuman and, and didn't need to dope, or he was doping better than all the others as well, which is, uh, which is why I sort of mentioned in my blog a bit. And I, I think that's an interesting question when you look at some of the, the fine details of, of, of the history of this. Um, he might well have been doping better than other people were doping. And, and I think that's a separate, separate discussion. We haven't finished the story about Lance Armstrong and cycling that period. It's not ended. I and mean, some things I can't talk about because there's obviously an ongoing discussion between USADA, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, and UCI, which is the Union Cyclist International, um, and about the doping tests that were done in that period. So there's a still an ongoing debate. The cycling hasn't quite cleared out its stables yet. Um, but certainly, I think the Lance Armstrong has always helped. And, and interestingly, I was, um, I think when I wrote that blog, I thought, I thought when Lance Armstrong decided not to defend the case anymore, that people would stick with the settled views. The public would come to the sort of settled views that I, I, I guess he hoped for, that um, some people are against him, some people are for him. Let's just leave it like that. It'll sweep under the table. But I, I think what's happened, at least in Europe, is that the public, informed by the journalists who had all of their stories ready to go to print, um, have pretty much come to the settled view that he was guilty. Um, and I think Tyler Hamilton's book coming out now, I think, will increase that view. So when I thought it would be a settled sort of, it might sweep it under the table, I think what is done, at least on our side of the pond, has, um, has been very clear. It's still some of the cyclists don't want to talk about it, but in terms of the, the public now, the concept of, of Lance Armstrong as being a, 
a clean athlete unfairly accused has sort of gone in as much as they're concerned about it at all. So I think that's an interesting development. Um, I always say when I'm talking about him, he has always said he didn't dope. So I think you all should at least say that, even if someone has been been found guilty. So um, for legal reasons, I do always always tend to say that. Um, but I think that's that's true. So I think his reputation on our side of the pond has pretty much gone, except that at the same at the time, as I said, everyone else was pretty much doping then, and he was still the best. Mm-hmm. You know, he beat them, you know, day in, day out. Um, so, you know, tour in, tour out. So, you know, his story is still pretty amazing. But I think it's still not definitive until Lance tells his story, which I I don't think he's going to. So um, I think, you know, that's, that's it. So we, I don't think we'll ever know. And which I, in some ways there's a matter, well, I think it'd be good for Cycling to clean itself up and, and finally put that behind it. And I think it's close to that. I, th- I think hopefully the next year that will get will get solved. So the last two Tour de France's have been, most of would say, and I, I would completely agree, a lot cleaner than in previous previous years. Um, so that's that's good because it's more honest. Even if whether you, what do you think about the doping, at least it's clear what's going on, and there are no rules being being broken or, or fewer, which I think is good. You do raise a question at the end of the book, and uh, and this is interesting, and I don't know how to phrase it in, in terms of a question, but in looking at doping, and in particular uh, uh, genetic doping and the possibilities for that, we're, we're really looking at the limits of uh, what humans are, are, are able to do in terms of athletic performance, correct? And, and you do cite some research in which we, we see we're in athletics, in track, we're reaching the limit of what mm. is of what is humanly possible, and so uh, is it is it possible then? Do we see doping as a means of of extending that or of pushing that boundary? Yeah, I think I feeds back to the first chapter where I talked about you know, about what have we evolved to be? Where are we optimized already? Um, what events? And, and I and I I suspect we've evolved to be good at very long distances, um, not too fast which is there's very few sports that are like that. So um, there probably is, if you like, a, a gap for us to get better by genes and by, by training. Um, whether doping gets you beyond that, I, I'm not sure. I think if you were able to genetically engineer a person precisely, there must be a gap you can get, you can get to. But we're so far away from being able to do that. And I think we'll see those changes. You know, if we see that, we'll see changes in, in other walks of life before for then in terms of creating superhumans because you've got to do it in the germ line i think to, to really do these big effects which we do in animals because in animals we can see very large effects um by manipulating genes but you do it you know in the embryo and we ain't going to be doing that at that level in in humans um certainly not with numbers of genes um anytime soon i think i think um we do it in very specialized cases but it's not going to be common um so i think in that sense I think it's theoretically possible, but I, I, I think it must be possible to go faster. But there are various calculations about what is the fastest time you could possibly do. And it's interesting, the, 100, the men's 100 meters is one where people do say there's, there's space to move um, on the extrapolation to one of the few events. So, which is really why bolt coming out there is, is, you know, is, is not as surprising as you might think. Um, so they're talking possibly about 9.4, 9.3, which is a bit of a way to go still um, uh, in, in those events. I think in terms of women's events, if we go back to that, there's clearly almost two levels of, of activity for women's events. Mm-hmm. 
So that is true. So I, so I would say men's events is always a bit more complicated. Probably you do the maximum amount of blood doping you can do for the aerobic events. Women's events with steroids, I think you are almost doing two different sports. So uh, I think that's true. And I think, therefore, that's a different thing because you are turning a woman into partly a man because you're giving them the, the men's powers. And we have said so we know that those genes make a difference. The one genetic difference we know is, is strong is male and female. So we know that Y chromosome has a massive effect on sports performance. So it, it's clear that's there. So as long as we have this differentiation between men and women, you can, there's a big, what we call a scientist, dynamic range in the female performance, which you can access. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the interesting thing is the comparison with horse racing, which I use in the book, where we've got a limited stock. Mm-hmm. We've started with not very many horses, and it's not clear how much faster we can get horses to go. Well, I think that's an interesting question when you do the calculations. That it's not been massively faster in the last 30, 40 years, horses. So... Um, it ought to be getting better because of better training and stuff, but it's not massively, whereas compared to athletes, it is true. But we look in the much bigger genetic stock with athletes, you know, the whole 4 billion population and, and you know, from going in the, in the dim past, whereas the horses we know from much, much short, smaller and more areas. So I think we haven't quite got there with athletes yet. So Chris, you're doing uh, you're doing your research in artificial blood, and uh, you have this book out. Are you are uh, you're going to be sticking in the in the field of blood research, or do you have plans for the the second edition of this book? What are you, what are you working on now? Um, well, I'm supposed to be writing a book on blood, actually. So uh, blood, a very short introduction, so a general thing on blood rather than the sports doping. That's a book I'm writing on. Um, the research I do is partly on artificial blood, and you know, there's a, there's a patent out there. If you've got a few million pounds, put it my way. We can take it to the next level. <laughs> um, but in terms of the other research, I also work um, in a sort of partly because I'm interested in sport, but also in medicine. This to basically my users trying to shine light to look at how the body works, and in particular to look at hemoglobin, which is this red molecule I talked about that carries oxygen around the body. We can shine light on the body and look at the hemoglobin inside the muscle for athletes or inside the brain for injured patients. And that's really another major research area I've got, trying to develop new tools for looking at the body um, non-invasively. So not taking a blood sample, just looking directly and seeing how the oxygen is being used. You know, the, the dream is that sort of the Star Trek, you know, I'm, I'm like you say, a 40-year-old academic, looking at what Dr. McCoy did, bones, when he waved a little recorder around the body and saw saw everything that was going wrong so we can do that a little bit with light with um, lasers but it, it's not where we want to be yet so the dream of doing that and looking at the oxygen without touching the body and, and developing tools for that is is another interest I've got and that's both in sport um, and in medicine so all based on blood but not necessarily taking the red stuff out and looking at it trying to look at it inside the body that's really my interest lie. You've been listening to an interview with Chris Cooper about his book, Run, Swim, Throw, Cheat, The Science Behind Drugs and Sport, published in 2012 by Oxford University Press. New Books in Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from science fiction to philosophy. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, 
and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week. Thank you.